Since it's a small crowd, let me just introduce myself. In fact, you can introduce yourself to me since we have a small crowd. I'm David Ward, an historian at the National Portrait Gallery, curating right now this show on the second floor, Hide Seek. Um, and so I'm getting away from that by doing sports and Michael Jordan, one of the iconic figures of the last quarter century in American popular culture. And if we step down to the picture, I'll talk a little bit about that, a little bit about Nike, and a little bit about William Blake, the poet. I'll give you a little bit of background on this. The, 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 the National Portrait Gallery was shut from 2000 to 2006. For those of you who have had any contracting done in your house, you know that any construction plan takes about twice as long as we planned. Uh, we totally renovated the building, but we, we also did, and this is a product of it, is that we totally renovated our ideas about portraiture, that we modernized everything. That instead of seeing a kind of stuffy, old oil painting museum with the cliche of sort of middle-aged men with tweed jackets, we wanted to explore the art of portrayal and we wanted to really dramatically broaden the notion of who we portrayed in the gallery. So what we did here for our entry um, room is we have both Americans now and portraiture now and this allows us to collect essentially contemporary Americans, people who've made an impact on American society in our own time um, and also different elements of portrayal, different elements of portraiture. So you'll see here everything from kind of fine art photography to this Michael Jordan represented in a Nike ad. We're expanding the notion of portrayal and portrait away from just the totally fine art. And this is an early uh, mid, just after Michael signs his contract with the Chicago Bulls. You can tell in part because he still has a little bit of hair. Um, and I realized if I was a little bit less of a technophobe is that what I should have done was downloaded a lot of Michael Jordan dunking and shooting and winning games on my iPad and just play it because there's an element of kind of the ridiculous here that you have a transcendent athlete, a transcendent figure who expresses himself through bodily movement and athletic competition and I am going to talk about him so there's this, this element where you can't really get that close to him. You have this, we have the same problem if you're dealing with musicians or dancers. Michael Jeffrey Jordan, born actually in Brooklyn, New York, moved to North Carolina when he was 12. Famously, he did not make the varsity basketball team in his high school as a sophomore. And this is that kind of founding myth that a lot of people like, which, which indicates that people, your, your character, your destiny isn't set with an early age. There's an equivalent myth that, or it actually is a myth, that Albert Einstein failed algebra when he was in high school, which turns out not to be true. Einstein failed French. But, Michael Jordan did not make the varsity team as a sophomore, but what people, what, what happened was over that summer he grew four inches, worked really hard, and made the varsity team the following year, uh, played in North Carolina, got a scholarship to North Carolina, um, matriculated under Dean Smith, a legendary coach, and won a national title there, becomes player of the year, wins the championship game against Georgetown by hitting that 15-foot J, which if I had my iPad I would be able now to show you, but I don't, um, and goes on to be drafted number three in the NBA draft. And of course that's the famous draft which Portland, Oregon rues to this day with Hakeem Olajuwon being drafted number one, which is a defensible choice. And Portland taking the poor old Sam Bowie out of Kentucky at number two, 
despite the fact that he had repeated stress fractures in both legs and could barely walk like you know, Fred Sanford and Sanford and Son, not a good move. And Michael Jordan, who everybody was circling to get, falls to Chicago at number three, thereby setting the pattern for a dynasty in the Middle West and heartbreak in Portland, which, by the way, as an historian, I have to just parenthetically say, Portland then repeated that mistake by drafting Greg Oden out of Ohio State despite repeated leg problems as if they had never learned from this. Again, the lesson is you don't learn from history. And I really wonder what they were thinking if they could have taken Kevin Durant, but I digress. Jordan actually, again, liked the, the, the element of sort of slow gestation and the idea that he doesn't get, um, he doesn't make his high school team. It takes him seven years, and we frequently forget this, to win an NBA title. He comes into the league, he's immediately incandescent. He averages almost 30 points a year. His rookie season, which leads to the famous joke for North Carolina about who was the only man who could hold Michael Jordan under 20 points a game. And the answer, of course, is Dean Smith, because Dean Smith, the coach, ran a pattern offense. Most famously, when I grow up, before the shot clock, Dean Smith would run the four corners in the famous game against Duke, which the halftime score was six to four. Um, and so that element of overcoaching blighted, or at least trained Michael Jordan to the art of team play, which he then forgot about promptly when being coached by Doug Collins and a variety of early coaches at Chicago which were not successful, ran into the Pistons' bad boys, um, that famous agglomeration of Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer, not my favorite team as an NBA devotee. But they're the roadblock that Jordan has to come through, the fashioning of the Jordan rules, which essentially pushes him to his side, double teams him, run him through, through screens, and all the rest of it, um, until finally, Doug Collins is still coaching in the league, and. I guess that's good for him, but he, he ruined the Wizards and wasn't particularly good. And Phil Jackson comes in to coach Chicago, and what Jackson does is institute the triangle offense in which all the offense has to go through Michael Jordan, making him, in effect, a team player, that he doesn't rely on a supporting cast that included people at one point, like Dennis Hobson, forgotten NBA player. But by making Jordan essentially the port point forward and surrounding him with a talented cast, including Charles Oakley and ultimately Scottie Pippen, the, 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 the quintessential NBA wingman, um, they enter into the famous period of the two three-peats, three NBA championships in a row, interrupted by Michael Jordan's sudden, almost inexplicable retirement um, in 93 after that season. And what happens, there, there's he retires to play baseball. The tragedy that occurs, of course, is that Michael Jordan's dad is murdered in a roadside, um, almost drive-by murder when he's changing a tire in Lumberton, North Carolina, and is murdered by two guys. Um, and this, as you'd expect, is devastating. Jordan retires to play baseball. There is a theory propagated by Bill Simmons, the sports guy for ESPN, that in fact, David Stern secretly suspended Michael Jordan for gambling but um, wasn't willing to announce it in public, and so told him to go play baseball for 18 months, and then he could come back. I'm not sure that the theory is true, but it gives a kind of nice, uh, a, a kind of almost conspiratorial state of life, the state of the news media attitude towards what was, in many ways, a difficult decision. Jordan, of course, goes to the Birmingham Barons, plays baseball, is not very successful, 
which gives baseball fans a tremendous degree of satisfaction that this quintessential athlete is unable to hit a baseball, um, is what baseball devotees want to know. A couple of years, a year, 18 months later, Michael announces the famous two-word announcement, I'm back. Um, comes back, not having played basketball in 18 months, scores 19 points in his return, scores 55 points, the famous double nickel game at Madison Square Garden a couple of weeks later. My brother was at that game and said that it was absolutely unbelievable. The Knicks then actually were good. They're not any good anymore, but they were, they, and Jordan just blew them down. Um, and so what you do with Michael Jordan, the problem with him is that you pile up statistics that eventually become almost meaningless because they're so incredible. Uh, averages 30 points, six rebounds, five assists throughout his career. Um, six NBA championships, five MVPs. He only wins five MVPs because people get bored voting for him. His good buddy Charles Barkley wins an MVP, mostly because people just were tired and they figured, well, Chuck never won anything. We'll give him the MVP and he'll be, and everybody likes Chuck. Even Jordan liked him. So you just kind of give it to him because it's just too easy because he made everything look too easy. And that's where over and above the numbers, and this is where I wish I did have my iPad or a TV monitor, when we think of Michael Jordan, we don't think about the numbers. We think about the incredible moments, the, 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 the ones that we see either in the Nike commercials or the NBA ads or the Sports Century classics on, on ESPN, the, the famous basket against the Lakers in which he drives the lane, switches the ball in mid-hand, you know, seems to hang in the air, goes right to left hand and flips it up and in. I won't do my Marv Albert imitation here because it's really terrible, but there's a whole series of those, kind of, of those kind of moves. The fantastic dunk against the Knicks where he goes to the corner, get, makes a jab step to the corner, immediately reverses and jams it in over Patrick Ewing as if he was a midget. Um, it's unbelievable, these, these moments. The famous six three-pointers in the first quarter of one playoff game in which he, where he's just gunning down, I think it's Utah, and at the end he runs by Marv Albert and the boys in the, in the, and he's like this as he's running down court because even he can't believe how he's doing it. And then finally, of course, and this is this for a Washingtonian, this now gets me into difficult territory because the final moment in his career is the, is the winning the winning play against Utah at Utah, um, in which he strips the ball from Carl Malone, who always managed to lose the ball at big moments, so I don't like Carl, but okay. So he strips the ball from Carl Malone, and there's a famous shot in Sports Illustrated in which he goes up for the winning jumper, and you can see in the crowd, everybody, because of high-tech, high-definition camera, everybody in the crowd, he's going up for the jumper at a little bit at the top of the key, and everybody in the background is like this because they know exactly what's going to happen. And of course, the, the famous one, which, which basically I have to bring it up because it must have destroyed his life. He should have moved to France and changed his name. The famous shot on Elo, the, the, the Marv Alberts call when Jordan wins the game against the Cleveland Cavaliers where Craig Elo is trying to guard him. And he's actually doing a pretty good job. And Gore Jordan just rises up and keeps rising in Elo. He hits the basket and Elo just falls to the ground. They lose the game and that just, I mean, that basically destroys him. And that gets to the other point is that there's nobody been in this, in, in terms of the elements of athletics, the elements by which people have certain talents and somehow are able to rise to a kind of transcendent, almost ethereal category that, that, you, that, that it's very hard to imagine. There are very few people who can do that. I think 
I don't know, to pull somebody out of a hat, somebody like Pele in soccer, um, others, uh, Burden Magic when they were at their best, but they were sort of partners. Jordan really stood alone. He's, he's undoubtedly, you know, or almost, you know, by unanimous consent, the, the greatest basketball player of all time. When I was a kid, of, of course, GOAT meant that you were, a, a, you were the person who caused the problem, but GOAT, first with Muhammad Ali, another transcendent figure I should have mentioned, GOAT now means greatest of all time. Ali has a book about him called GOAT, which I didn't understand for a while. And Jordan, of course, is the same thing. And with, with Jordan, there's that will to win. And this is where you get to the uncomfortable element for him, which is that he's a, he's a figure, if you think about it, that we never know. We don't know anything about Michael Jordan. Americans, the way they've dealt with sports stars, the, you know, the, the all-American boy, or I was growing up, I lived in southern New Jersey, Bill Bradley was at Princeton, and there was a whole mythology, you know, Bill Bradley going to class, or there were other people, this, you know, even Magic Johnson with the, the infectious smile in Michigan State, and Larry Bird, the hick from French Lick. There was a whole narrative to them. And Jordan kept himself absolutely isolated, almost, we, he never let you in. Um, and he never let also, I think, a lot of the people that he played with in, in the sense that he was not going to be diverted from being a stone-cold killer on the basketball court. And that defines his greatness. And I think to some extent it also defines a kind of a limitation, which I certainly think he doesn't care about, which is that he, didn't, he gives the impression of inviolability, of invulnerability, that, that, that nothing could touch him. And of course on the court nothing could touch him. I mean, what he wanted to do, he did. Um, there's the famous, the famous instances of his competitiveness where the Bulls at one of their training camps had a ping pong table and he got beat by somebody like Steve Kerr. And Jordan went out and bought a ping pong table and got some Chinese guy to teach him ping pong and he beat the hell out of everybody until they finally got rid of the ping pong table because they couldn't play with him anymore. <laughs> um, the same sort of thing, he wins two Olympic gold medals, the famous anecdote. At one point, the first dream team they're scrimmaging are playing against a college team and some college kid, I can't remember who it is, you know, was, um, actually it was Alan Houston. Alan Houston, who was still in college, did pretty well and was kind of being a little chesty about it. And the next day they come out and Jordan points at Houston and says, I got him. And Houston didn't even get a dribble off, let alone a shot for the next two hours. And that element here of, of ultimate competitiveness, which also then, and this was his problem until actually Phil Jackson uh, manages to, to, to manage this. The, the, the instance during one of the finals where Jordan is, is breaking the triangle um, and other people are open and, and Jackson says, who else is open? And, and he points to John Paxson and, and Paxson hits the winning shot in that particular game or series. That element of making Jordan deal with other people. And for a Washingtonian, we finally get the number one draft pick. Michael Jordan comes out of retirement to sign with the Wizards in what turned out to be a kind of misbegotten uh, failure. And I'm a big basketball fan, and I've put up with 30 years of bad basketball in Washington, D.C., and I'm not very happy about it. So we finally get the number one pick, and Michael Jordan in the new regime picks Kwame Brown, who, to be fair to him, although he's now a bust, was, a tr was the consensus number one pick. 
And whether he would have been great in another regime or not, I don't know. But what, what does seem to have happened was that as the general manager and then as a player coming out of retirement, Michael Jordan just destroyed his confidence. There's a famous story of Michael Jordan scrimmaging and playing one-on-one -on -one with Kwame Brown in which Jordan just crushes his ego and the element here where this element that Jordan would not allow these other people the space um, to grow. Um, that, and it'll be interesting to see how he does as an entrepreneur um, and, and, and now the owner of the Charlotte Bobcats. Because that gets to the next level here in terms of this, in terms of what we do know about Jordan. And I don't know that they're connected, but Michael Jordan really is responsible for a, a major sector. I mean, I know we all have disposable income that goes to leisure, but the element by which the American sporting goods, apparel, fashion industry takes off, and particularly the success of Nike, is due in no small measure to Michael Jordan. Uh, Michael Jordan famously almost signed with Reebok um, when he had his first shoe deal out of college, and they man Nike managed to convince him that they would design a shoe around him, and the Air Jordan um, is one of the iconic brands in American manufacturing, sporting, and cultural history. And every year, the new Air Jordan, the design elements, the whole thing. When I was, again, growing up, we had those, you know, they're now only hipsters wear them, the Chuck Taylor, the Converse All-Stars. But Adidas introduced a leather sneaker and then the other manufacturers. But the Air Jordan was the quintessential must-have shoe. Every year, like the new high-performance car, it was what you had to get. And that really fueled Nike when he signed with them was in the doldrums. Reebok was the, was the up-and-coming brand. And as soon as Jordan was, was putting on those iconic red, black, and white first-generation Air Jordans, they become the brand Nike prospers and turns into the rather rapacious athletic juggernaut that it is still today. Jordan never really lets anybody in, and, and, and I, I, I hope that he, you know, again, we want our superstars to be accessible. We want them in some way to be people we can relate to. We try in many ways to humanize them. We try in many ways to get inside their skulls, to feel that we know them as fans. And, of course, a lot of that is fiction. A lot of that has to do with the distance between ourselves as ordinary, however talented citizens, and then these superstars. The element of corporate intersection with that, where the brand becomes more important than the personality, has, I think, accelerated that sense of distance. You no longer have somebody like Willie Mays playing stickball in Harlem or any of those kind of things where you could walk around and just see some of those people. There's a branding opportunity that you see that in many ways isolates people even further. But at his heart, at the heart of his character, and at what makes him great, it also what makes him slightly terrifying is Michael Jordan's incredible will to win. Um, what I remember about him, having watched most of his career, and, 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 and I played basketball until I stopped growing, uh, or at least stopped getting taller, um, is that he had the fastest jump spin on his jump shot that I've ever seen that most jump shots, they go up and the ball rotates. When Michael Jordan took a jump shot at the ball, he torqued that ball so it, it almost seemed to fizz out of his hand. 
this act of direction, this act of physical force in which he's controlling a basketball, throwing it through the rim. More than his dunks to me, the dunk competition, it, it was, I would watch him make that 15-footer, the shot that he made to beat Georgetown, and, it was, and you would just, even through the TV, you would almost seem to fizz with the, the sense of, of, of his investment physically and his transfer of his power to that ball. Um, you know, it sounds fatuous to wish, uh, to hope that he's happy. He's a young man, and what, I, what, what bothers me as I thought about this talk and dealing with him is the, the statistics which eventually become meaningless. There's his career, the marketing, um, even in the, in the Hanes underwear commercials, he has a kind of alienating presence which is a little bit off-putting, playing as the kind of you know, the superstar that, the, to be blunt about it, white people are trying to get close to. There's an element there that's, that's a little bit uncomfortable to me. But then most of all, the thing that I thought was a little bit of a telltale, um, his acceptance speech at the Basketball Hall of Fame last year, which he, I don't know whether he, what advice he got or, or what element um, went into it, but he used it as the opportunity. Maybe he thought he was being funny. Maybe he misjudged things. But it really wasn't a, was a very uncomfortable moment which, of where he settled a lot of scores in which whether it was making fun yet again of Jerry Reinsdorf, the rather overweight general manager of the Bulls or other players and essentially this element of, of, of almost willful distancing that you have somebody and it's, it's understandable why he would do it. I mean, I understand the urge. Um, the urge to, to, to settle scores. Your, your, your dad is killed. You go through a very public divorce with, at the time, the largest divorce settlement in, in sort of commoner history, a non-royal divorce. The sense that you're always at the center of attention, the sense that the paparazzi are always there, the sense that you're always being put upon, you're always demands on your time, that you're being eaten alive by fame. But it was a remarkably ungracious moment, and um, I hope that in some ways, whatever he does, however he does it, that he recaptures in his own life. And this is, again, a fatuous expectation on the part of somebody who will never meet him, is that he finds and recaptures in his own life some of the grace that he brought to the basketball court. Thank you.